You know, uh, we have decided that we would like to talk, take a look at some parables over the next few weeks, but sometimes when we do, it appears that we already know where it's going, already where it's heading. And so we thought, well, let's kind of put a little creative spin on each one, kind of share it in a new uh, idea, in a new direction. And so each week, you're going to get to see a different video vignette that's going to capture the idea of the direction uh, of the parable. And today we're going to look at a parable that for many of us, maybe you've heard, maybe you're going to jump into very quickly, and we're going to hopefully pull back a little bit from it and see it in a little bit of a different light. But Jesus liked to tell stories because it was a way to invite people into a conversation and to enlighten or even expose different portions of their life. It could give a greater picture to what God's doing in his overall redemptive story, remind us how we're all involved, but remind us of our own personal need. And so in this idea of the next few weeks, we're going to look at how Jesus tells some of these stories and some of the understanding that he has. And for Jesus, it was one thing that he would share openly, but often then pull his disciples, his followers in closer to help them get a better understanding. So we're going to unpack these stories. We're going to look at them a little bit, but when we use the word parable, here's what we are really saying. That a parable is, a fictional, is fictional stories with earthly examples to convey a spiritual truth. They're not just some sort of moral understanding, but there's a, a, some spiritual truth within that should be transformative to the nature by which our life is being lived out. Parables take us to a specific time and a specific moment. It reminds us maybe of scenarios that we've played out in our own minds and in our own life. You could say on one hand, they are there to comfort the afflicted, but to afflict the comfortable. They help provoke in us somewhat of a visceral response, a gasp, a shock moment, and an awe moment that we, we didn't see coming, a curveball, if you will. Mark uh, chapter 4 says this about parables. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand or comprehend. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. So you can imagine even in the uh, teaching and leadership of Jesus, what you see is this, this aha moment where Jesus is maybe teaching to crowds, but to those that are following closest to him, maybe he does a, deb a debriefing moment, if you will, right? Did you see how people responded? Why do you think they were so surprised? What does that say about the culture that we're a part of? Here's what it means for us to live as people after God's own heart. And Jesus didn't just throw out these stories to just rah, rah, yeehaw, encourage the crowds, but it was to transform them, to mold them and shape them into the values that are reflected in Jesus himself. So if at first, maybe we don't discover the emotional response, we might be missing a portion of what this is really trying to teach from us. We might be reading things with old lenses or the way we used to see things. So today, as we jump into a, a parable that I think is familiar, we're all probably going to have a moment for those of us who maybe have grown up in church, uh, maybe have seen this parable more than once. We might see things a little bit differently today. And if you're a person who's come back to church or come to church for the first time, and maybe you're like, I'm not really even sure where we're going with this, your fresh eyes will be encouraging to us that we can all jump into this together and say, okay, let's, let's begin to see what Jesus has to say. Here's what we need to understand, though. 
Parables teach us things we may not want to hear. The beautiful subtlety about a parable is for us to look in and to understand a bit of the story from a distance, but also reflect on our own life, understanding where maybe there's misalignment in our own personal walk with God, in our own understanding with God, in our own view of how the world may function. Eugene Eugene Peterson called uh, parables truth with a slant. It it was one of Jesus' most preferred forms of teaching. He enjoyed engaging people in conversation and stories and allowing them to have their own aha moment. Jesus tells a little over 37 different parables throughout the Synoptic Gospels when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John itself does not record any of Jesus' parables. So when you look at the overall teaching of Jesus, you ultimately realize that about a third of Jesus' talk time was in the storytelling, giving people an understanding of what was going on. So let's jump into our passage today. If you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to the book of Luke. It's in the New Testament. It's one of the first four books of the New Testament in Scripture. And so when you open up and begin to look there, you begin to see a testimony of Jesus, his life, his character, And this, Luke chapter 18, is a portion of where Jesus is telling one of these parables. Here's what it says. To some who were confident in their own righteousness, and this is where we need to begin, right? To some who were confident of their own righteousness, and they looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. It sounds like a joke, right? Two men walk into a bar, okay? So we're tracking, right? Now let me give you a little bit of context before we unpack this whole parable. What's happening in this initial story is Jesus is setting up for a parable to confront. Why? The opening verses, we already see that there are people who are extremely confident in their own ability, right? They work harder, they're smarter, they got more money in their wallet, they, you know, in Jesus' day, they're driving the two-hump camel, not the one-hump camel, you know. They're pretty excited about who they are, and literally, Luke says, they're looking down at others. So Jesus makes a statement. He says, there's this temple. Now, a temple uh, in Jesus' day was a, a gathering for worship. It was a place that they would come together to offer sacrifices and to help make their life right back with God. And so they would come for moments of prayer. They would come for rituals of cleansing. They would come for opportunities to to purify themselves before God. It's part of why we come to church, right? That in our relationship, we come to declare praises, to learn truth, to begin to be transformed by who God is. And so you can start by almost saying that they're in their community of faith. They've come to church, and two different people walk into the room. Now, one is a Pharisee. Now, for those of us that kind of grow up in church, Pharisee is kind of a a good and bad term. What it needs to be understood is that in Jesus' day, a Pharisee is a good thing. It's a religious leader. It's somebody who has committed their lives to follow after God. It's one who has learned the law, the Torah, the understanding of God's word. It's somebody who has applied their life to help lead in that process, to be one who leads by example. Okay, and so you could you could make the context and say, well, it's it's a pastor. But the truth of the matter is not every pastor is great. But pastors, by and large, are not intended to be seen as evil. 
right? But there's a tax collector. Now, none of us like taxes in America, right? We would love to be free from them. But in Jesus' day, when you use the term tax collector, this was an employee of the Roman government who was Jewish. So it is your neighbor who is now collecting taxes for the oppressive government. And when he comes and knocks on your door to collect your tax or his tax, not only is he empowering the government that's oppressing you, but he's making his livelihood off of your taxes. Two people walk into a church. One is seen as the the person that's chasing after God. The other is seen as the extortionist. The neighbor who smiles on your way to work only to come by and knock on your door to see if you're home because ultimately he wants to take from you what benefits himself. You getting the chasm? You getting the awkwardness of what's happening in this moment? Here's what it says. Verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He'd not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and he said, God have mercy on me. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, for the last 30 years of faith, I have kind of taught this passage from the perspective I'm going to share in just a moment. The way I've understood this passage is, uh, is pretty straightforward, Right? That you have somebody who seems to have their life all together and they're praying, they're making their relationship right before God, they're encouraging their walk with God, and they see someone off in a distance who's having their own spiritual renewal before God, and that person is just broken. And the way I've understood this is that the Pharisee looks at the tax collector and says, Thank God I'm not like him, right? But there's a challenge with that interpretation. Because if you put yourself in the shoes of the tax collector and look back at the Pharisee and you go, Oh, I praise God I'm not like him, you're stuck in a dichotomy. You're stuck in a parable about Judgment. And this seems to be counterintuitive to the very nature of what God's trying to teach, perhaps, in this moment. Here's why this gets challenging. How we assess the Pharisee may tell us more about ourselves than the Pharisee. Truth of the matter is, anytime that we open up Scripture, we read it from a Western modern perspective, correct? We read it from the context by which we are living. We read it with our eyes, our culture, our view, our understanding. But this is a message communicated to a specific people at a specific time in a specific context. 
And so in our teaching team, we began to wrestle with this passage and how we wanted to teach it. And we were introduced to a, a theologian from the University of Vanderbilt who is a Messianic Jew and contends that perhaps our modern English reading of this passage is more Western in nature than Middle Eastern. That we don't see the communal context of literally what's happening in this dynamic, and we only read this from the individual portion. Now, some of you are like, I'm just going to check out because this sounds like something I need on the bonus round of Jeopardy, so I'm not sure what's going on. Follow me with this, okay? Follow me with this. There's some concepts in Jesus' day that would shape this culture. One, Pharisees are not evil people. Pharisees are people who many would aspire to be. They'd want to live their life after. So when the Pharisee enters the story, this is somebody that we go, oh, this should be the hero. This is somebody we should look to. When the tax collector enters the story, we would have this, oh, boo, hiss, evil, bad, right? But there's this, there's this tension there's a concept in Jewish history at this time called the merits of the father. And the merits of the father kind of begins to communicate that the benefit of one plays out to the benefit of the other. We begin to see this Pharisee maybe as a hero. He's a super Pharisee, right? He goes above and beyond. And so when we begin to look at Pharisees as not being evil... But setting a high example, we begin to maybe see this caricature, this fictional story, as a hero type. Dare I say, a savior. Blameless, pure, right before God. And his declaration is not one of arrogance, but it's what he does. Right, bro? I'm the eye in the sky. Red shorts. This is what I do. I save people. And frankly, when you begin to think about a Pharisee, you'd want somebody who lives that. And when you think about a Savior, you'd want a, a Savior that lives with that kind of confidence, right? Someone who knows who he is, his role, his giftedness, his context, what he's supposed to play out in this. But the tax collector is drowning in his own life. Broken, lost, living in a moment in his life where he's dying. The gasp in this moment is not so much the judgment that we may see in our Western context of someone who's living for God looking down on someone who's not, but the gasp in the moment is what happens in verse 14. Verse 14 says, I tell you that this man, meaning the tax collector, rather than the other went home justified before God. Now that's where in the English version why we anchor this this chasm. But here's the challenge in the text, and I've been grappling with this text for quite a while this week, trying to really own this, because for 30 years, I have taught the earlier portion. Here's how rather than may be best translated. Here's what I want you to see. Rather than is the Greek word para, which means, or translated often used, to parallel or paradox, parable, that's where we get the idea from. And the way it is most often used or leveraged means next to, alongside, or beside. 
And the tension of the passage is not that the Pharisee was evil and the broken man was what God wanted. The gasp is that those who lift after God and one who has lived in rebellion who reaches out to God are both justified before God. And this is where the tension lies for us. Because for many of us, when we think about the merits of the Father or we think about our own merit, we all believe that only those who work hard, only those who put their time in, only the ones who do this deserve that. And Jesus portrays one who has been pursuing God and one who realizes their brokenness, both being able to approach God and both being able to be found justified. You tracking with what I'm saying? You understand what I'm talking about here? Sometimes we live in a, in a dichotomy of this world that we think only certain people are accepted before God. But like the lifeguard, all you got to do is ask. All you got to do is cry out for help. There is this invitation for all of us to be able to find the benefit, the merit of the Father for our benefit. Now, some of you are like, I'm not quite digging in. I don't quite really understand where we're going. Well, why does the Pharisee go home justified? Because he was already justified. He was always already living out his relationship with God. Why does the tax collector go home justified? He was justified alongside or next to the Pharisee himself. Let me give it to you in this illustration. How many of you like to do group projects as a kid, okay, in high school? Yeah, yep. Most of us who did were because we were the guy that got the benefit of somebody else, right? Now, in a group project, here's how it works, right? There's three different type of people. There's, there's the purposeful person, right? The purposeful person is like, okay, what do I got to do? What do I got to get done? Here's what I want to make sure happens. The second person is the productive person. This is the person who understands what needs to get done, understands what their role is, but wants to make sure they master the process. The third person is the present person. They're there. Okay? This is my testimony. Okay? The reality is this, that any time a group project would come together, a teacher would say, hey, we're going to put you in groups of threes and fours, and everybody needs to understand that at this date, at this time, this project needs to be completed, and you're going to work on this together. And you will not get a grade by what you do or by what you do or by what you do, but what all of you do together. So each person needs to contribute to this project as a whole. Now, the purposeful person goes, all right, I'll get in. Let's see how this goes. The productive person jumps in and says, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's how it's going to happen. We can all meet at my house. We can do all these things. My, my family's going to help. Uh, we've got stuff at home. My dad was an engineer, so we can build the catapult. We're going to get all this done. We're going to ace this. And the present one goes, where, where am I supposed to be? Wh whose house are we meeting at? I'm sorry, I got to text somebody. What, what, right? And the day comes for the presentation, right? The class walk, you walk in front of the class, the productive person stands up, excited about the presentation they're going to make. The, the person who's purposeful goes, come on, let's do this, let's make this happen. And the present person just stands there going, man, I hope this works. I don't remember how he did this, right? And the project comes off, and the teacher says, you get an A. 
Now, the human nature in us goes, an A. I should get an A. They should get a B plus. And let's not even start with this guy, right? It's offensive, isn't it? And Jesus is introducing the concept of grace. That it is not by your merit alone that we're saved. And the scandalous nature of this parable is that both can be justified before God. The truth of the matter is, in this, Pharise, in, this, in this parable, the Pharisee is not you or I. It's not those of us who grew up in the church. It's not those of us who had a family that always believed in God. It's not, it's not that those of us who got a jump start or understanding our Christian faith as children. That's not us. The Pharisee is a picture of Jesus. The Pharisee is a picture of one who stands justified before God. That by his work and his work alone, we are saved. It's his death on the cross. It's his righteous and blameless life. He paid our price for our life. And we, not because we're good looking, not because our dad is who he is, not because we've got more money in our back pocket, not because we had perfect attendance, but because of the work of Jesus, we are now included. Whose work does the tax collector lean on? Whose merit does he begin to glean from to go home justified? He, he leans on the work of Jesus. And this parable is spoken to a group of people who feel like they've worked hard enough, they're smart enough, and their legacy is enough to say, I deserve what I get. And Jesus says, time out. None of us are getting what we deserve. I am going to pay our price. And then he wraps it up. He wraps it up with this verse. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's move to a time of response. All throughout Scripture, the, there are these comments, these confident moments that like the Apostle Paul, a man who is transformed by God, speaks he talks about his legacy, his heritage, and being a religious leader who really felt like he knew and understood everything the way it should be. And yet his life points back to a point of brokenness. I identify with that sometimes because my dad, my grandpa, my great-grandpa, they all came to faith, and all of them went into ministry at one point. And sometimes there's an arrogance that shows up in our own merit. It happens with me. Sometimes it shows up in tradition. Sometimes it shows up in the confidence of how long we've gone to church, where we've sat, what we've done, what we've given. 
And we begin to confuse that our faith and our legacy is about us, not about him. Friends, there's probably a confrontational moment that if we really look at this passage and we start putting ourselves in the idea that we cannot earn our faith, we cannot earn our salvation, that for some of us that makes us angry. We like to produce our own good works. We like to have our own merit. We like to be celebrated for what we do and what we have. And please understand, this is not a message about mail it in and let God do all the work. That's not what it is. But it's a gut check to remind ourselves at the very moments that we see ourselves in our own merit, rather than transformed by the merit of Jesus, we miss the point. Friends, that's why we start with this song this morning. I will call upon the Lord. For he alone can save. I want a lifeguard. I want a savior who's confident in what he does. I, frankly, I, I, I'm deeply indebted to the fact that Jesus Christ gave his life, died a death on the cross, that when I was drowning in my own sin, when I was struggling with my own life, it was God who gave himself. His love, his compassion is what saves me. Friends, this is why Christianity is so different than all the other world religions. Because every other religion says, work harder and maybe God will accept it. Give more and maybe God will love you. Keep working this out over and over and over and what you do will eventually make it right. And Jesus says, no, I'm the eye in the sky. I see what no one else sees. I'm the one who saves. I know the price for your redemption. And it was my life, my death, my burial, and my resurrection that has saved Do we live differently because of that? Absolutely. That's the transforming work of Jesus. Do we continue to offer our lives back to God daily so that we might grow and mature and become the very character of Jesus? Absolutely. But let's not, be, for, let's not forget that it's his work in us. And so friends, before we stand and give ourselves a rousing, uh, standing ovation or a rounds of applause, May we be mindful that who we are, that what we have, that this moment in time is for his glory, not for our own. You know, in a couple weeks, we're going to have a baptism Sunday. And you know, when I think about ways that we could, we could surrender our lives to God, there's things that aren't quite so humiliating as being in front of people, being dunked in water and coming up soaking wet with all your friends and family around, right? It's not complimentary, right? Nobody looks their best after being dunked, right? And yet that portrait of new birth 
that portrait of new life, that envelopment of God's love, God's grace, God's work, God's transformation in us is powerful. I love doing baptisms. You know why? Because I love the smiles on people's faces. It's hard to see people who will humble themselves before God come up with anything other than gratitude. And so whether they're children, whether they're parents, whether they're single or married or grandparents or rich or poor, oftentimes when they're laid down to put the old man to death, to rise new in the likeness of Jesus. There's this smile that comes across their face and says, I couldn't do this on my own. This is God's work in me. Friends, may we be humbled by the greatness of God. May we be ever grateful that he paid our price, that he swallowed up death. May we ever be grateful that the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ was what has made us right before God. And so with great confidence, we don't come by our merit, our talent, our good looks, our name on our back of our jersey. We come to God because God has done this. It's his work. It's his way. It's what he does. May we today humble ourselves before God. And may our response to him, whether it be in a prayer request or in a decision of faith like baptism or to accept Christ, may it be done with a smile because he's the one who makes this right. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we are thankful that we are justified next to you. Your work your merit has made us right. Sure, God, we, we, we shouldn't look down on people. We shouldn't criticize people. But God, first and foremost, we should not be exalting ourselves. So God, forgive us. Forgive us when we've made life about us. Forgive us when we've thrown ourselves into the center of attention. Forgive us when our selfishness and our merit has caused us to think that we deserve, we should be more than what we are. God, it's your work in us. And we are grateful. We are thankful. And we offer our lives to you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you wash us clean? Would you dump us out of our selfishness and fill ourselves with your faithfulness? May your character and your presence in our lives begin to transform us from the inside out. And may we begin to live lives that look like you. It's in your son's precious name that we pray. Amen. Friends, if you are maybe new to First Christian, in a moment we're going to sing some songs and people are going to stand and they're going to respond. 
We respond in different ways. Some of us, we stand and just sing back. Some of us stand and we reflect. Some of us sit and we continue to pray. But as people are comfortable or feel led, they will move from their seats. And maybe today some of us will come up to uh, these benches up front and we'll pray a prayer of thanksgiving toward, before God. We know what it's like to be drowning in our own lives. We know what it's like to be found guilty before God. We know what it's like to also stand with confidence before God because of the work that he's done. Some of us will go to these six tables that are around the room. There's a lit candle on them. There are trays with bread and juice, and we, we have this as our time of communion, and communion is a, a chance for us to pause and to remind our, ourselves that our relationship with God was paid for in his broken body and his shed blood. The bread represents Jesus' broken body and the juice represents his blood because Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you. And so we commune, we come together in common unity with each other and before God to eat the bread and drink the juice as a celebration, a commemoration of God's work. And this is open to anyone who has a relationship with God. We just ask that when you come, you come to reflect on your own life and your own heart before God, and you celebrate, you celebrate what God is doing in your life. And then several of us will either grab our phones and respond through the Give app, G-Y-V-E, to give back and fuel the mission of what God's doing here at our church. Or maybe they've filled out a connect card and they want to go to one of the four boxes that's around the room, the give and respond boxes, and you want to share a prayer request or you want to make a decision of faith or you want to talk with somebody to, to go through the journey of faith that you're on right now. Or you want to give of your tithes and offerings. However you do that, these moments, this time, as we go ahead and stand, is our chance to respond whether in song, whether in prayer, whether in communion or giving, or all of them, may our response be not for our merit, but be because of what God has already done.